Jesus saves, Jesus saves, and the hearts of mercy breathing, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, hear the host of angels sing, glory to the newborn King, and the sounding joy repeating, Jesus saves. See the humblest heart adore Him, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, and the wisest bow before Him, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, see the sky alive with praise, melting darkness in its place, there is light forevermore, Jesus saves, He will live our sorrow scary. Jesus saves, Jesus saves, He will die, our burden bearing. Jesus saves, Jesus saves, oh, it is done, we'll shout the drop, my Jesus saves.
always enjoyed hearing Brother Ernie sing. I've been listening to him for a long time. As I mentioned this morning, he and I go way back. I think, if I remember, you might need to help me here. I know you've got a mind as sharp as a tack. <laughs> Steel trap is rusted up. <laughs> I Me too. Our first encounter was actually a revival meeting together at Wu's church, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. We had a mutual friend. It was actually my college roommate. His, his last name is Wu. That may give you a hint. He was one-fourth Chinese, and he was pastoring a little church outside of Cleveland, Texas, and asked me to come preach and Ernie to come sing. And we had, a, we had the time of our life out there. We just saw God do some special things. It was back during what was called the uh, Good News America, God Loves You Simultaneous Revivals in, I think, 1987, maybe 86, somewhere around in there. might have been before that even, but that's about when it was. And so we've been friends ever since, and uh, I've, I've had him in my church before, and we've been together on mutual occasion. I always enjoy hearing Brother Ernie sing. He's, he's, he's just really been doing this a long time and doing it well. He's stayed faithful to the Lord, and uh, I, I know that he... Uh, just loves to serve and loves being here, and I know that I do too. I want to also say tonight, I'm glad to see some of my family here, some of my, my folks who live out in the Zavala area, the, the metropolis of Zavala, and uh, they're really about all the family I have left on my side of the family, and so other than, than my immediate family, I have a couple of sisters and their, their families, but I'm so glad they're here. Uh, we've got preachers in the house tonight. We get to preach to preachers tonight, so y'all, you guys don't critique me too hard, okay? Whenever I'm listening to preachers, I always think somewhere along the way, well, I would have done this that way. So y'all don't do that to me tonight, okay? Just be easy on me. Be easy on me. But I'm so glad to be back with you this evening. You know, Brother Ernie was singing the song, Jesus Saves. And in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Scripture says, Nor is there any other name given under heaven among men whereby men might be saved. The only name that we can lift up that helps anybody is the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the only name. And so... What's happening in our world today is that, that that not only is becoming minimized in many places that even call themselves churches, but it's also becoming uh, marginalized by our society. The, the society that we live in is trying to, 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 to really push in against the church and to keep it from being and doing what the church has been called to be and do. I found myself in one of those situations that was unlike anything that I'd ever experienced. And I've experienced quite a lot, but this one was so unique, it was so different, it was almost unreal. The best way I can describe it is that it was almost as if I had stepped out of real life and into a movie or perhaps a dream. I'd been asked to go with a group on a mission trip, and I've been on several mission trips. I've been on mission trips ever since I began in the ministry. In fact, I accepted surrender to the call to the ministry in 1981, and in, it was in January, and then in the summer of that, that year, I spent the whole summer on summer missions down in Brownsville, Texas. So missions involvement has been something that's been a, a, a very much a part of all of my experience of serving the Lord. So that's not something that was new to me. This particular mission trip, however, was, was to a different place than I'd ever been. It was a mission trip to a country called India. Now, I don't know if you've ever been overseas internationally. You may have, but I don't know if you've really ever been to a place like India. Unless you've been to India, you probably haven't been to a place like India because it's unique, it's different. Uh, the, the, the geographical region of India is about a third the size of the United States of America. The population of India is about four times the, the population of America. So what you have is you have four times the population and a third of the geographical region 
and most of them live in the cities. And I'm telling you, it's, it's just, it's, you've kicked over an anthill before, right? And you know what that looks like whenever they all just start going. That's the way it is all the time there. I mean, it is just crazy. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And so I got on this plane to fly to India, and it was a rather long flight. It was somewhere between, best I can remember, 13 and 16 hours on an airplane. And the whole way there, I was trying to think and imagine in my mind, what is this going to be like? What is this going to look like? What is this experience going to be? And I can honestly say that after all of the preparation and all of the, the contemplation, even through all that flight, whenever I got there, I can say that nothing could have prepared me for that experience. Not, not only was the population just massive, not only was the poverty unbelievable, not only was the filth unimaginable, but those really weren't the most unsettling things that I saw. As we began being driven down the streets by the people who were hired to drive us, I think the most unsettling thing for me was to see in both cities and villages alike idols, huge idols, 40, 50 feet tall. These, these places and figures that have been built by men. And as people would come by those idols, they would bow down in front of those idols in worship and adoration of these articles, these artifacts, these figurines, these altars that were made to these man-made gods. And, and, and they, would, they would stop and they would, they would honestly just get on their faces before these huge altars of these huge idols. Soon we would go to the place that we were going to minister. And our ministry was actually going house to house, or in our case many times hut to hut. And the huts would, would be something like you wouldn't believe. It would be like, it would be like you might have seen on a, on a Western movie a, a village where teepees were. And that's about what they lived in, dirt floors and... And they were just stacked on top of each other, masses and masses of people. And interestingly, as we would go into these houses, we had uh, got, gotten a bunch of the Indian pastors to come with us to translate for us. And as we would go into these huts or these houses or whatever they happened to be, you could look on the, the wall and you would see these shelves. Now, everything else in the house might be cluttered or it might be simple, but on the shelves on the walls of these houses were still more gods, more idols, man-made gods. And these people would every day, they would offer their prayers and their sacrifices, whatever they could, whatever they had, to these gods that were present there in their house. And it made me the, as sad as anything has ever made me. Because you see these people who were worshiping things that they themselves had created and had elevated these things that they had created into the place of God in their lives. And I thought, that is just so sad to me. Because here they were. And, and in fact, in, in the book of Jeremiah, in the 10th chapter, there is a, a, a place where God speaks through that prophet. And he says, what's happening in these pagan places is that these people are going out and they're carving a tree stump. And they're carving that into some kind of an image that they would worship. And then they will put that image on a cart and they will carry it from place to place and they'll worship that image that they've made and that they're carrying around with them from place to place. I want to tell you something this evening. I don't need a God that I can carry around from place to place. What I need is a God who can carry me. 
And I'll tell you this, the world needs that as well. The world needs that. But what's happening is that even these people, and it was interesting, I was having a conversation at lunch with Ms. Jackie Brown. And by the way, you know, in the spirit of getting everything right in my heart for revival, I apologize to her for anything I may or may not have done in the 10th grade English class when she was my teacher <laughs> years and years ago. And she said, oh, you were a quiet one. And I said, that was when you were in the room, Ms. Brown. But anyway, so I got all that straight. My heart's clean tonight, so I want you to know that. But, it, but I, was, I was talking to her and Kirk about the difference between an authentic faith and what I called a Facebook faith. You know what I'm talking about? You know, all of these people that come out of the woodwork on Facebook and give their acknowledgments to God when it's time to do that, but then suddenly they just disappear when it comes time to really be sacrificial and servants of the Lord our God. And so there's a difference there, and we need to understand that difference, and we need to acknowledge that difference, and we need to see that difference, and we need to call it for what it is, not only in the lives of people that are beyond us, but also in our own lives. We need to be very careful that when we begin to look around us and to see what's wrong with the world, that we don't fail to ask the Holy Spirit of God to search our own hearts and to begin to show us what's inside of ourselves. I, I have the privilege and responsibility to serve on the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's, that's, it's sort of a big deal. There are five of us who represent the state of Texas, and we do a lot of things with the cooperative program money that's sent to the, to the national convention. There are 83 of us in, in, totally that serve the whole nation. And I don't know if you know this or not, but it has a, a, a guy who is actually the executive director of it. He's called the, the, the president and CEO. And about a month ago, we got an email, and this email told us that he was retiring. And pretty soon in the same day, there was another email that followed that and said that he was actually having to step down because of moral failure. And so we had to go to Nashville in, on the 17th of April, and we had to deal with all of that stuff. And this is the first guy in the history of the Southern Baptist Convention who was the head of an entity, like a seminary or a, a mission board or the executive committee or anything, has ever had to step down for moral failure. And he's 65 years old, and this is the legacy that he's leaving. And, and, and the problem was that he let, he let the, the idea of what he was doing take the place of who he was doing it for. And he let his mind get away from the one that he needed to be focused on. And so he failed to, to continue well. He failed to, to end well. And he's got a legacy now that nobody else in the history of the Southern Baptist Convention has. Now, how would you like to have that attached to your name? There is a, a reality that we've got to understand, folks. And the reality is this, that we have to look inside of ourselves. And what that helped me to know in dealing with that situation was that until we get honest about what we're capable of, until we get honest about what we can do, then we're never in a position to be so, so, so sold out to God that He can do anything He wants to in us. So we need to get honest about ourselves and things that we might elevate to a godlike status in our lives that would prevent us from really exalting the God who is. Now let me tell you what happens in Acts chapter 17. This is within those missionary journeys of Paul. Paul was, was a guy who was tireless. He, he had endless energy and he, he went all the time to different places preaching and teaching, starting churches here, teaching pastors there, doing all kinds of things. He was just a, a man that God used so phenomenally. And no, normally one of the reasons that he went to so many places was because the place that he was before he got ran out of there. 
And usually it was his own people that would do it. And he, he talks about the things that happened to him. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. You name it. He's done it. And he's experienced all kinds of persecution and all kinds of hardship and all kinds of heartache because of his testimony for Christ because he wouldn't shut up about it. And so they would run him out of town. And so he would go to the next place. Same thing would happen. Well, in this particular chapter, he's been to two or three places now. And he finds himself in the middle of that chapter, about verse 16, 15 is where it tells us that he went there, to a place called Athens. Now, Athens was in the country of Greece. Still is, by the way, if you wanted to go there. And so Greece was a place that was, it was occupied by people who were Greek, obviously. And the Greek people considered themselves to be these, these highly uh, developed philosophers and thinkers. And if you think about all of the, the, the people that we know of, uh, the, the, in fact, the, the word philosophy comes from a guy whose name was Philo, who was a Greek scholar, a Greek thinker. And, and you can go on down, Plato and all those guys. They, they were Greeks primarily who brought all this, this school of thought and they considered themselves to be deep thinkers, philosophical thinkers. And they would get together in, in the marketplace and they would have discussions about their, their opinions about things and they would argue and they would discuss and they would debate. And then they would come back the next day and they would do it all over again because they loved to do that. They just loved to talk about things. And so Paul ends up in this place called Athens. Now picking up in verse 16, I want you to see how this chapter begins. It says, while Paul waited for them, that is those Silas and Timothy and others who would come to him, it says, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Let me pray for us for a moment, please. Father, I want to ask you tonight, as we continue to dig through this section of your word, to speak to our hearts, Lord, not about the idols that might be in Athens, not about the idols that might be in India, but even about the idols that we might have raised up in our own lives, and certainly about the idols that are raised up in the culture that we walk through. Father, help us to identify anything in our lives that stands between us and the one true God, because there really is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we might be saved than that wonderful, matchless name of Jesus. And it's in His name that I pray. Amen. So what's happened is that Paul has moved forward in the, to the next place of his missionary activity. And as he moves into this place, what he sees is this city. And this city is completely given over to idolatry. They have an idol to everything you can imagine. Everything that they think could possibly be a god, they've made a god. They've made an idol to it so, because they don't want to miss anything. Remember now, they're, they're the thinkers. They're the ones whose thinking is broad. They're the ones whose thinking is wide open. You know, they're open thinkers. You've, you've heard about open thinkers, right? Some people are such open thinkers that they've opened their minds so far their brains have fallen out. And that's what we live in in the world today. People are so open to anything that they can't understand what they're doing. They're giving their lives and their minds and their hearts away to things that are worthless and wasteful. So Paul sees this, and Scripture uses the word in the New King James Version, provoked. Another place says that his spirit was stirred within him. That's what the King James says. The idea here is not that Paul was angry so much, but it's just that whenever he saw the the brokenness of the culture that he had stepped into, when he saw the, the sinfulness and the idolatry of the world that he had walked into, his heart was broken for that. 
His heart was stirred for that. Paul was unable to walk through that world without being impacted and without being affected. Paul was someone who did not put on blinders. You know what blinders are, right? That's what they used to put on the mules to make them walk straight down the road when they plowed. And sometimes we as believers tend to put on blinders about the world we're walking through. We act like the things that are happening are not happening, and then we act like when we know they are happening that they don't impact us at all. Well, let me just tell you something. You should take a, a, a trip down, down the, the, uh, pl the places of information that are available and see what's going on out in California right now. Because they're coming to a place where they are trying to ban the Bible as a, as, as a way to help people who are dealing with issues of any kind and, and they're trying to say you cannot legally use the Bible as a way to help people out of situations that they're having feelings that they don't belong in. And, and it's, it's a terrible time that we're coming to. And that's the world that we're living in. And if we think for one instant that that's not something that's going to continue trying to move inward, we're wrong. This world is facing some things. And we need to come to the place where we don't put on blinders to the culture that we're living in. And, and we certainly don't need to put on blinders and say, that, that, that we ourselves have no issues that we ever need to deal with. And so Paul finds himself in this situation on his second missionary journey in the city of Athens. He surveys the city and he sees all these idols and it concerns him. It stirs him. It breaks him. It saddens him. And so he is willing to assess the situation that he is involved in. I want to ask you a question. And believe me, it's been, it's been years and years and years since I've spent a lot of time at one time in this wonderful town. And as I said this morning, every time that anybody ever says, where are you from? My first response to them is always, I'll tell you, but you're not going to know where it is. And then whenever they begin to ask me, I begin to tell them, and they say, you're right, I don't know where that is. And so I pinpoint it for them. And then I say, that's home to me. This is home to me. I love this place. I love this area. I love Tyler County. But I want to tell you something, that we need to be willing in Comus Neal, Texas, to look around us and to be honest in our assessment of the spiritual condition of the climate that we're walking through, of the culture that we're living in, and not just dismiss it and brush it off as though it has no impact on us or as though we have no responsibility in it. Because we do. We do. We're the people of God, and we're on a mission. God has sent us. We're on mission for the Lord. And so an assessment of the world we walk through is always in order. And we, we need to understand that as we walk through this earth and we see things, that this becomes for us something that we ought to allow to stir us inside. We need to become broken about the brokenness of our world. We need to allow it to affect us. So Paul is stirred and he's assessing what he sees. What are we looking for whenever we walk through our world? What is it that we're, that we're trying to see? And here's the answer to that. Anything that has been allowed in any part of our culture or in our own personal lives to achieve or to rise up to God-like status, anything that has been put in a place that only belongs to our God who we worship and who we serve. So we're looking for anything. And, and we're asking God to show us, is there anything in my life, is there anything around us that has been moving into this position in this place that really only belongs to the one who is God? See, in, in, in the place that Paul went to, everything was an idol. Everything was. These people would worship anything, anytime, anywhere. Just like the people in India. Whenever we went to India, and, and we went down the streets of that place, and we would stop, and we, we had these guys who would go before us, and they would find a place that we could gather some people up, and we began to talk to them about Jesus. 
And you know what their response was? When we began to talk to these people in India about Jesus, they were elated. They were ecstatic. You know why? Because now they had one more God to add to the list of gods they already had. It wasn't because they understood until we began to, to, to really nail it down for them. We're not talking to you about one God among many gods. We're talking to you about the one true God, the only God. And boy, then they would sober up. They would get serious in a hurry. And sometimes, on occasion, some of them would come to an understanding that there is only one God. And you had to go all the way back and help them to understand that we're talking about not the God who's been made, but the God who is the maker. Not, not the God that we fashion with our hands, but the God who fashioned us with His hands. And so whenever we began to explain that to them, and they would come to terms with that, they would, they would get real serious. You know why? I had a guy that I was talking to, and, and I, I spoke to him probably for over an hour in his place, and this is what he said at the end. He told the guy who was the interpreter, the translator, he said, I believe everything he's saying. I believe it with all of my heart but I can't accept his Christ. And, I, and I, the guy told me that, and I said, why? He said, there's two reasons. He said, number one, he runs a business, and in this village, if he accepts Christ, he's going to lose his business. And I said, he said, number two, he's got daughters. And in our culture, he said, in our culture, if daughters don't get married, you are accursed. And he said, nobody will marry his daughters if, if he becomes Christian. And so he's not going to accept your Jesus. And I just, I just shuddered and I thought, you know, for us in our world, we don't have those kind of, we don't have those kind of, of, of situations that we have to even really think about most of the time. There may be some on occasion, but in our world it's not an issue. And, I, and, and so the, the idea is that whenever they had to, had to put it all on the line, they, they would often say no. Some would say yes, but often they would say no because they knew that it was going to cost them everything. And when they did say yes, they did it with the understanding that it was going to cost them everything. Everything that they had made a God could no longer be a God in their lives. Now let me explain something to us tonight. It's no different for, for us than it is for them. We, when we say yes to Jesus, we have to say yes to Him as God. And, and anything else that, that stands in the way of that, we have to be willing to understand that if it costs us everything to follow Him, then that's the price that we're willing to pay. So Paul sees this city, and it's totally given over to idols. And, and he sees that their whole, their whole culture is paganism, the, the pervasive ra uh, reality that, that stands in the center of their world. It's not God-centered, it's man-centered. It's about idols that men have made. It's about things that they have elevated to the status of God. And so he begins to speak to them, and he speaks to them. He goes first to the synagogue, with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers, it says, and in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. Then it says certain Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. By the way, if you want to get into something that's really interesting, look those words up sometime and just see where they take you. These, these are those thinkers, those guys who want to be the experts in everything, but the, 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 the ones who don't want to be pinned down on anything. And he said, some said, what does this babbler want to say? So they called Paul a babbler. Now, now, Paul is probably the, the greatest theologian other than the Lord Jesus that ever walked this planet, and he's about to impart to them spiritual truth. If you look up the root word of that word babbler in the Greek language, it literally means food for, for, food for sparrows. They're saying, What's this guy's bringing to us 
food for sparrows. In other words, they're saying he can't compete on the same intellectual level that we can. He's coming to us with his archaic belief in who God is. By the way, you know, the world will say that to you if you try to talk to them about your Jesus. If you try to point them to an old rugged cross and say that's the answer for all the problems that exist in our world, that's the answer for the brokenness, that's the answer for the sinfulness, that's the answer for every situation that is, that is uh, corrupt and, and distant from God is that old rugged cross, they're going to look at you and say, you don't have a brain in your head because they can't accept that. It's just this old archaic belief system that you haven't evolved in your thinking yet. And that's what they're saying to Paul here. And he said he seems to be a... Look at what they said about Paul. He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. (laughs) Now, he's stepping into this place where everything is a god. And the reason that they said that is because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. I want to tell you something. Anytime that our preaching gets far from that, we've departed far from what God has called us as a church into existence to be and to proclaim. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This is the place where they would all gather and said, may we know this new, what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there, listen to this, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So that that old-fashioned gospel wasn't what they wanted. They wanted to hear something new, something different, something challenging, something that they had to struggle with. And so Paul, he's brilliant. He is really brilliant. He stands in the midst of these people in the Areopagus in verse 22 and says, Men of Athens... I perceive that in all things you're very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. So what Paul does is he basically, first of all, addresses their Facebook faith. (laughs) He says, you know, you have all the language about what it means to be religious. You have all the language about what it means to to really act like you know the jargon of of religiosity. But I want to tell you that there's a God that that you don't know. You've even got an altar built to an unknown God, and I want to tell you about the God you don't know. Now, the reason that he's doing this is because he knows that whenever he lifts up and exalts and magnifies the God who is, that, that it's going to minimize and eliminate everything that is not God when they accept and believe on Him. Now listen, that's how it's got to be. When God is exalted, when God is lifted up, then everything else has got to pale into insignificance. Nothing else matters except who God is. And if God is who the Scriptures say is, then nothing else matters except that He's shown us there what He wants us to be and do based on His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, He says, God, who made the world and everything in it, Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with man's hands or with what men make, as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all, breath and all things. And he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, and also, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Therefore, since we're the offspring of God, 
We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because He's appointed a day on which He'll judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He's ordained. He's given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysus, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Now, let me kind of bring all this home to us. What's happened here is that Paul has moved into this pagan world. He's moved into, into a place where people have embraced as God everything that is not God except who God really is. And as he sees this, he begins to speak to them about the God who is. And he begins to lay out the character of this God who is. And the first thing he says to them is, I want to talk to you about the God who created everything. The God who's the creator. And he says it very clearly. He says he is the one who has made everything. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's not worshipped with men's hands. He gives life and breath to all. And so he's beginning to speak about him as the God who is the creator. The one who called everything into existence by the spoken word of his mouth. Where there was nothing, now there's everything. Where there was just this this vastness of emptiness, God said and it was. And so he's the creator. He begins to explain to them that you are here because of him. Then he talks about him not as a God who began at a point in time, but a God who's always been, a God who's timeless and eternal. He's the God who's forever. He says, you're not trying to, to, to look here at a God that you can look on the bottom of his base and find an inscription that says he was made on this date by these hands. You can't say that about this God because he's been here forever. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He has been before everything was and he'll be when everything is not. He's the God who's forever. Then he says about him that not only is he the God who's the creator, not only is he the God who is eternal, but he's also the God who is the giver of the very life that you have in your bodies. He's not worshipped with men's hands. He gives life and breath to all. In other words, what he's saying about this God is that you are absolutely dependent on him, not only for your existence, but for every single breath that you breathe, for every blink of your eye, for every movement of your hand, for everything about your existence, you're dependent on him. If God didn't want you to have it, if God didn't want you to be here, it wouldn't happen. And you're here because God allows it. You're here because God has has opened up his will and his desire and caused it to happen. So he's the God who's the giver of life. He's also the God who's the sustainer of all things. He's the one who, he says, upholds everything by the word of his power. He says, in in him we live and move and have our being. Everything about us is, is dependent upon him. Therefore, he says, since we're the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or anything that you can imagine or create in your own hands or in your own mind. And what happens is that in our world, people want to, again, as I said this morning, kind of tip your hat toward God. But we want it to be the God that we create. Now, we won't, we won't build an idol and set it up on a shelf in our home, but we will redesign God in our minds. We, we'll begin to take this God of the Bible and we'll say, you know, this is what it says about Him, but, but I know that God, God's not, He's not going to be that harsh in the end. God is not going to really judge me if I choose to live this way or that way. 
Uh, and so we begin to redesign God or redefine God or maybe even reassign God. We, we begin to say to God, look, you, you, can have, you can have access and you can have lordship and you can have authority over this area of my life, this area of my life, this area of my life. But, but listen, let, let me just have this one place in my life that, that you don't need to invade. That belongs to me. And so, and so we withhold that part of ourselves. But let me just tell you something. He goes on to say here that, that not only is God the creator, not only is he the eternal God who is forever, the life giver and the sustainer, but he also says about him that he's the judge. And boy, we don't like that one, do we? Look at what he says. He's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained. That's Jesus. And he's given assurance to that by raising him from the dead. God is a judge, people. God is going, he's going to evaluate. He's going to weigh all of our, of our lives. I heard one guy preaching on this one time, and I really didn't know, I didn't, really didn't know what he was saying per se until I had kids. And this is what he said. He said, what we need to understand about God is that God is a father. He's not a grandfather. When he first said that, I thought, what does this mean? And then, then I got to thinking about it, and I thought, you know, I, I, know what, I know what it's like to be a father because I've raised two sons. And, and whenever I raised my two sons, I told them how to walk the line. I'm not saying they did it. But I tried. I told them. I said, this is how it is. This is how it's going to be. This is what you need to do. It's what you must do. My wife said that whenever she was being raised by her parents, it was the same way. My mother was a part of our lives until 2007, so she was a grandmother to my grandsons. My sons could walk into their grandparents' house, and they could burn it down. And you know what they'd do? They, my, my, their, my parents and my wife's parents, they'd say, look what a beautiful fire they built. <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you, you know that's true, don't you? Y'all know you know it's true, don't you? <laughs> I've seen a couple of grandparents in here in action, but I've also, I've also heard from the parents that that wasn't the way it was with them. You know what I'm saying? God is not a grandfather. He's a father. And, and I, you, know, you, you, can have, you can have your kids, your, your kids go to their grandparents' house, and they can ride all over the wall down the hall, and you know what your, your parents will want to do? They'll want to cut that out and frame it and say, what a work of art. If you'd have done that, they'd have wore out a plow line on you. But, but God is not a grandfather. He's a father. And whenever God begins to deal with us, Scripture says, whom, whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And He disciplines us like a father disciplines his sons because He loves us. And so we need to understand that God is not just a creator and a sustainer and a, of life and a life giver and eternal in existence, but He's a judge. And, and everything that, that happens in our lives, everything that we elevate and exalt is God. He's not going to put up with that. He's not going to tolerate that. He's going to deal with that. And everything in our world and in our culture and our society, the people that we walk by every day that have, that have pushed God either so far out of their lives that, that, that they don't really know much about Him anymore, or they've never included Him in their lives, these people are going to stand before God someday, as we all will. And I want to tell you, Whenever this happens, we need to come to the place where we are ready under God today to say, Lord, find me faithful, find me pure, find me holy. We need to come to the place where we are willing to evaluate our own lives. 
and, and to, to let discernment come, not from ourselves, but from the Holy Spirit of the living God as He searches our hearts and ask ourselves, what are the, the cultural idols in my life that compete with the place of God? What are the cultural idols in the world around me that complete, compete with the place of God? I was riding on the airplane back from Nashville, and, and, I, and I, believe me, I'm not, when I, when I start to tell you this story, please don't hear me uh, coming down on anybody who makes choices that are not the choices this young mother had made. But she was talking about her sons, and she's got two, one that was eight and one that was six. And she said, we live in a, in a fairly nice area in Nashville. And she said, every kid on the street already has their own cell phone. They already have everything that they could ever want. And she said, we've just said to our kids, you're not going to have that yet. You're too young to have it. And, and, and so we're just going gonna to make you wait and come to a place in your life where you're mature enough to have, be responsible with it and where you're old enough to earn it. And until you do, you're not going to get it. And her kids are just, they're just amazed at that. She said, our kids were, were, were pretty good at ball, and they were playing select ball. And so we got to the place where, like, four Sunday, three Sundays out of four, we couldn't be in church because we had to go play ball. And so we sat them down and had a talk with them, and we said to them, listen, what's more important to you? What's more important to us in our lives? Is it, is it the ongoing development of our relationship with Christ, or is it winning baseball games? Ask the kids that. And they said, it's our relationship with Christ. And so she pulled them out. She said, we're not going to do this. And, and, and the thing is that here's, here's what I'm trying to say. If more Christians acted like that in, in society, then society, instead of, us, instead of us succumbing to their pressures, they would begin, once they lose their good ball players, they're going to start saying, okay, let's reschedule. And so, so the church needs to step up and say, we're not going to let those things be God in our lives. We're going to follow the God who is. And, and I'm, not say, I'm not saying that missing church for something is... Is, is, is the grave sin of the world, but I'm saying that whenever you put God out of his place, that, that we're, 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 we're giving a problem to the church and, and we're, we're, we're saying to the world that the church is less important and the things of God are less important than the things of the world and we've, we've minimized what God has maximized. So we need to have an evaluation of our lives. And, and I'm, not, I'm not pulling that out as the prime example. There are so many. That one just happened to be at the front of my mind. Then once we have the evaluation, we need to have an elimination. We need to refuse to follow the impulse that draws us away from keeping God out, whatever it is. Anything that, that God is keeping God from his rightful place, we need to eliminate it. We need to eliminate it, not yesterday, not, but, but right now. Not tomorrow, but right now. This is the moment to do that. Now is the time to deal with whatever it is. Any spiritual purging that is in order is not in order tomorrow. It's in order at this moment. And we need to let God do that. How many of you here know about the Bragg Light? Y'all know about the Bragg Light? Everybody here probably knows about the Bragg Light if you've been around here long. Uh, you know, I've been to the Bragg Light. Never seen the Bragg Light. I haven't. I've been down there. We went down. used to go down there all the time looking for it. Never found it. You know what I, you know what I say the Bragg Light is? It's a phantom light. It's phantom light. Now, let me tell you what that means to me. That means that it's something that you look for, but you may or may not see. And I'm not saying it's not there. You're saying, I've never seen it. But I was looking for it. And let me tell you what, there's a lot of phantom light out there. There's a, there's a lot of things that presents itself to the world as light worth pursuing. And, and, and the world chases it, and they look for it, and they try to find it, and they try to zone in on it, and zero in on it, and hone in on it. And then just about the time they think they're where it is, poof, nothing there. You know why? Because it's not God. It's not substantial. It's not eternal. It's not significant. 
And so we need to remove from our lives, from the shelving of our own hearts, just like the, those people had in their huts, shelves built around the, the walls of their houses, and they had idols on them. We need to look at the shelving of our own hearts and see if there's any identifiable idols there, and then let the fire of God's purification burn that out of our lives. This is important now. I want to tell you this is important for a lot of reasons. First of all, it's important for our wholeness. The, the goal of Satan is to fracture and fragment our lives, to, to, to separate it out and to, to, to keep us from being whole in, in, in the Lord. He, he wants to, to take little bits and pieces of our lives as he can get his hands on them and tear away at the flesh of our hearts until he has all. That's his goal. So it's important for our wholeness. Secondly, it's important for our happiness. Now, now let me tell you that happiness is different with God than it is in the world. The happiness that God provides is a thoroughgoing happiness that's, that goes into the depths of the soul. It's a joy unspeakable that's full of glory. And so it's important for our happiness, but it's also important for our holiness. See, the Scripture tells us that God has ordained us and called us to be vessels unto Him. And in these vessels, He has poured the very sterile and holy substance of His gospel truth. And whenever we allow ourselves, these vessels, to become tainted with the idolatry of the world, then what we're doing is we're trying to pour from a, 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 a tainted vessel what is a sterile substance, and that doesn't work. What we end up doing is contaminating the content of the gospel by the lives that we live that are unholy and unrighteous before God. So it's important. It's important. So what happens now is this. You and I and the Holy Spirit of God need to take a trip down the hallways of our own hearts. And we need to be completely transparent with God and completely honest with ourselves. And we need to ask ourselves, if the Holy Spirit looks into our hearts, what will He see there that may not be God? Is there something there that, that has taken the place of God, that has slid Him off the centerpiece is the centerpiece of our lives. Is there something that needs to be eliminated? Whenever we were in India, if somebody came to Christ and they had all these idols on the shelf, you know what we'd do? Well, this is when it got hard for them. If they said, if we said, Are you really serious about following Christ? And they said, Yes, we'd say to them, This is the next thing you have to do. We've got to take these idols out back and burn them. We've got to take them out back and burn them. And they'd say, they'd say usually they'd say, okay. And they'd say, no, we mean now. And they'd say, like, right now? And we'd say, yeah, like, right now. And if they wouldn't do it, we knew they weren't serious. If they wouldn't get rid of the things that, it, that were in their lives that were, that were not God but were God's, then we knew they weren't serious. But whenever they took those idols out back, and began to break them and set them on fire, we knew they were serious about God. I'm going to ask you a question tonight. Is there anything in your life that needs to be taken out back and broken and burned? Anything that's a God to you that doesn't belong in the place of God? If so, the time before us to do business is right now. We don't need to postpone. We don't need to wait. We don't need to delay. We need to let God be God tonight and let Him be God in our lives completely. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing together. And as we do that, I'm going to offer to you the same kind of invitation that I offered this morning. If you're here tonight, and you've never trusted Jesus as your only Savior, you've never received the forgiveness of your sins, 
I want to tell you, there's no other name given under heaven among men by which you might be saved. And, and if, until you come to God through Jesus, you can believe anything you want to about Him, but you won't know Him. You won't know Him as your Lord and as your Savior. So tonight, if you haven't trusted Him, then you need to come to Jesus and say, I want Jesus in my life. I want Jesus. And if you have, and I pray that everybody in this room has, but if you have and you know that there's something in your life that, that is keeping you from being all in with God, 100%, sold out, surrendered, something that, that has moved God out of the center, tonight I want you to just bring that to Him. And you can do that right here at the altar of this church. You can, you can bring it to Him. And you can entrust it to Him. Let Him take it from your life and fill that part of your life with Himself. And you'll be the better for it. And so after I pray, we're going to sing. And your pastor will be down front. And he'll be happy to visit with you about anything that's going on in your life. To pray with you, to pray for you, whatever you need. So I want us to bow together. Father God, we ask you in the name of Jesus. Lord, to be, to be very clear with us as you search our hearts just now, helping us to understand and know what, what is truth and what is lie from, this, from the evil one. Father, help us to hear clearly the voice of truth. You've told us that in many times and many ways you revealed yourself in times past, but you in these days have revealed, us, revealed to us yourself through your Son. And so we pray that Jesus would be Lord of our lives in every way right now as we yield to him, as we entrust to him, the essence of our hearts, the essence of our minds, the essence of our souls. And Father, if there's any business that needs to be taken care of, we pray that people will not be one moment hesitant, but that they'll come with urgency before you and let you deal with whatever's there that doesn't belong. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.